Welcome to the Khalil Osiris Podcast. In his series, The Psychology of Incarceration, Khalil will discuss self-imposed limitations. One of the things that, that I found to be very effective in working with men and women who are incarcerated is to be absolutely open and honest about my own criminal history. To share with them how I personally was as caught up in the distortions of criminal lifestyles, of criminal behavior, and of convict culture as anyone sitting in a prison today. I share with them openly and honestly also how that thinking and those values um, were not just in prison, but had existed in my life prior to prison. So that by the time I landed in prison, the thinking that it, that it took to create those conditions was already embedded. The prison did not create those conditions. The thinking was present prior to my incarceration. I tell that to them because I, it's important that they understand that there's something bigger than, than prison that's happened to them that they have power over and that their personal power is essential. It's decisive in transforming what their prison experience will mean for them. And so I would say to anyone watching this video series, particularly to those who are inmates at this moment, a lot of people hear the saying that everything happens for a reason. What we say in the psychology of incarceration is that things happen and we make meaning of those things. Make the meaning something useful. Make the meaning something productive. In the final analysis, we do as Gandhi suggested. Be the change we want to see in the world. Be it for ourselves, be it for our families, be it for our communities. And most of all, live it on a day-to-day -day basis. Khalil and I, we sailed together at Warren Correctional. And here I was, a young 21-year-older, and here he was, an older gentleman, 30s, 40s, late 40s, already um, coming to the system with his master's degree, his bachelor's degree, um, had the, the charisma to influence, um, had the leadership abilities to lead. And I, and I always wondered, well, how did you come to prison? Because for someone who I looked at, who had all of these, these concepts, all of these ideas, had this vision of what I considered a man to be in terms of the walk, yet in the same condition, the same situation that I'm in, but I, I, I actually saw his walk, and I listened to him. Now, this is a person who had a master's degree already from Boston University, Ivy League. But what attracted me was that he was able to take a, a, a highbrow concept and deliver it in a simple way. Because in prison, the average level of education is less than seventh grade. So if you're able to meet an audience at that level and raise them to a way that they're able to challenge themselves and make a serious commitment to the work that you're doing, to me, that was, that was phenomenal. I mean, over and beyond the little twinky ideas that we say that folks are 
caught up in the day-to-day -day activities in terms of how to get commissary and worrying about a letter and a money order and all that stuff. Here you had someone who was just constantly focusing on developing himself and raising the level of consciousness of the community inside. So that was a, a strong attraction for me. So I made sure I cling to that individual and then other individuals like him because I seen that as a way to release myself from my imprisoned environment. I've been in the business for over 25 years, 17 of those years as a correctional administrator. So during that time, I've had the opportunity to witness many, many inmate programs. And to my amazement, first of all, the program actually, when he does the program, there's 250 to 300 inmates that are partaking in this learning process. And it's so wonderful to see their attention span, to see how they are engaged and engrossed in this material. And I almost immediately seen the impact of a change in behavior of those people who were participating in the program. You would go into housing, into the housing unit where this is being offered and see guys sitting around talking about their behaviors. So far, what I've seen is the most powerful inmate program I've ever been in contact with during my tenure. And 25 years is quite a long time. I can't say anything but good things about the psychology of incarceration. And as the psychology of incarceration says, what's most important is to change offenders' way of thinking, to free them up from all those negative thoughts and attributes and learned behaviors to not come back to prison. And I'm in this business to help people not come back to prison. Anyone watching uh, these tapes on the psychology of incarceration will immediately come to see that the focus is on absolute personal accountability on the part of the offender. The person who is in prison who participates in the programming that's represented in these training videos will find themselves able to really assist the incarcerated man or woman with taking ownership for changing their lives. One of the greatest challenges in doing work in the field of reentry is how do you get the offender to take responsibility, to take personal responsibility for making changes in their lives that would get them out of prison and help them stay out of prison. And this video, this series, is designed to do precisely that, put ownership and accountability in the hands of the offender. When we talk about the psychology of incarceration, we're talking about a body of work that came out of prison. That is to say that the heart of our work consists of letters and entries, stories of men and women who were incarcerated. Most of them, in fact, are still incarcerated. But what we're looking at is not just their stories, we're examining how they think, how each person who tells their story gives insight into the way that they think and what their values are at a personal level. 
So what we say in the psychology of incarceration is that incarceration is a metaphor for self-imposed limitations. Incarceration is a metaphor for self-imposed limitations. Let me give you an example of what we mean by a metaphor for self-imposed limitations. How many of you believe that there are people in the community, people on the streets who have never been incarcerated, who have a stereotypical perception of who you are for no other reason than you're in prison right now? How many of you believe that? And how many of you think that the information they have in the stereotype, a lot of it is simply untrue? Well, what we say is that the metaphor part of this process, the metaphor part of this statement, speaks to oftentimes the stereotypes that people have about others that are not informed by the person, him or herself, but by the assumptions that we have as a result of information we've received, things that we've watched. Something, it could be something as simple as watching the nightly news and seeing that every time you turn on the news, there's some kind of offense that has been created or has been committed by someone who, in this case, is African-American or young or comes from a certain uh, community, not necessarily African-American, but just from a poor side of the community. We know that these assumptions exist about people, but the question is, do they always lead to prison or jail? What we say is that the majority of people who have self-imposed limitations will never see the inside of a jail or a prison. Because we engage in those self-imposed limitations in ways that are socially sanctioned. That means that you've not committed a crime by having a self-imposed limitation, but it does limit the way that you see other people. Another example would be being a man and being in a relationship with a woman. We tend to think as men in our relationships that women are supposed to do what we say. At the end of the day, if there's a real serious question that's going to be asked and somebody has to decide what it is that's going to be done in the household, we as men have been socialized and oftentimes conditioned to think that our say is the final say. Is there anybody here who thought that way before they came to prison? Okay, a few of you. Who here felt that your, how many of you felt that your wife or your spouse your girlfriend should have had the last say in the things that you decided in your household. Anybody? You felt that? Okay, we have one person who felt that his wife or his spouse should have the final say out of a room of, of about 80. The point is that as we begin to examine how self-imposed limitations work and how all of us engage in them, all of us have them, what we discover is that we had them long before we ended up in jail or prison. And here's the key. They were embedded before we came to prison. And therefore, once we get to prison, if nothing happens to change them, then even though our behavior is punished, our thinking is never challenged and never changed. And a number of us, even after we're released, We'll continue with that thinking, and ultimately, many of us will return to prison. Does everybody understand that? How that process works? So, 
if incarceration is a metaphor for self-imposed limitations, the, one of the key factors in the process of studying how we got in prison and what we've got to do to get out is to understand what kind of self-imposed limitations that we personally engage in. Now that process is a process fundamentally that's focused on self-reflection and self-analysis. And some of us in prison, the statistics say that most of us did not graduate from high school. We don't have a GED. And so there is an assumption that because many of us did not graduate from high school or have a GED, that it's going to be difficult for us to understand concepts like self-imposed limitations and metaphor and how to really think about incarceration, not just from the perspective of the offense that we committed, but in a broad sense, how our thinking triggered it. What I know from experience, having been incarcerated for over 20 years, is that it doesn't take a high school diploma or a GED or even a college education to really seriously figure out why we do what we do. Any of us can take the time and really begin to sit and look at our lives and get an understanding as to why we're thinking the way we are and ultimately take control of that thinking. That's called personal power. And that personal power has to do with our self-perception, the way we see ourselves. So we have to have first an understanding of how incarceration functions and how our thinking led to our incarceration and then how we can change that thinking. So we have a broad understanding of incarceration as a metaphor for self-imposed limitations. We kind of have a sense of how this process unfolds, but what we need to do to really get a deep understanding of the process is we have to examine how it works on a personal level. The symbol that we use for teaching the psychology of incarceration is the triangle or a pyramid and an arrow. And this arrow is always pointing outside the triangle. At the top of every triangle is what we call mental health standards. And basically, mental health standards reflect pro-social values, what we call pro-social values, or traits. In this case, an example of a trait would be attachment. Now, it, is, it would always be at the top of the pyramid. Whatever the mental health standard is that we're examining will always be positioned at the top of the pyramid. Attachment is defined in our work as a willingness to see others as unique human beings and to allow them to see you as, an, as a unique human being. In other words, a healthy sense or pro-social -sense, pro sense of attachment is when we're able to go into any situation, walk into any room, be around any other human being and allow ourselves to be seen for who we truly are. Not wearing a mask, not hiding, not having a need to pretend to be somebody we're not. And to be able to see other people in the same way, to allow them to be themselves in the sense of whoever they reveal themselves as, we're prepared to accept them for who they present themselves as. Now, 
the key with understanding how the mental health standards work is that in their healthy sense, they're always reflected as pro-social values. And this word pro-social is very important in our work because crime, the behavior that we call crime, is essentially antisocial behavior. Pro-social and antisocial. So crime always reflects an antisocial type of thinking and an antisocial behavioral system. It's very important to understand that from the beginning. Because once you understand that it's antisocial, then you, you can do something with it. You can figure out how to gauge whether your thinking and your values are in line with that which is in your best interest or those values which are consistent with pro-social thinking. Now, in the middle here, we have what's called, we've heard the pro-social definition, we have what's called the distortion of the trait. The distortion is always the anti-social definition. And so when we define attachment in the pro-social sense, when we examine it in the distortion, a distortion of attachment in our work would be detachment. So someone who's detached is a person who's unwilling to see others as unique human beings and allow them to see you for who you are. The detached person is the one who walks into a situation, has an experience, and is just completely shut down in terms of anybody really getting a look at who they truly are. Now, what we do from here is we define a condition. And this is where the part of the person who's incarcerated comes into play. Every one of us sitting in this room has been arrested. That's how we got in prison. There was an arrest, there was a conviction, and now we're sitting here. So the first condition that we would talk about is arrest and detention in the county jail. The condition is important because what we want to do is define what precisely we're talking about as it relates to incarceration. What are we really talking about? If it's arrest and detention in the county jail, arrest and detention in the county jail, we want to have a condition that's explained by someone who actually has lived it. That's the power of the model. You want someone who's gone through it, who's experienced it, who knows what it is to talk about it. Tell us what you felt. Tell us what you went through. Tell us what it was like to be arrested and detained in the county jail. Because it has more substance then for the people who are studying it and trying to get a sense of how they would respond if placed in that situation. So the first thing that we ask the person, once we've defined the mental health standard or the trait, and then we explain the condition as it's reflected by the person who's gone through it, we ask that person, if put in a condition of, of arrest and detainment in the county jail, what would be your response? Now let me give you an example of what's said in the text so that you know precisely what we're talking about regarding the condition. Now, the healthy definition of attachment is to be open, a willingness to have others see you for who you are, and for you to see them who, for who they are. How many of you, when you walked into the county jail, when you were arrested, you went into the county jail, were concerned about being seen for who you are and allowing others to see you for who you are? Did, did anybody here do that? How many of you started to operate out of the distortion? What we find in the classroom, 
with students who have never been incarcerated is that most of them report having just read about the condition that they immediately detach. They immediately begin to act out the distortion rather rather than the healthy sense of the definition of the value or the trait. The implication of that is if your response is more out of the distortion than the healthiest definition of the trait, then the question becomes, is your choices being determined by your conditions or your values? Is it being determined by your conditions or your values? That is to say, you are being controlled more by that which is within you, a source of power within you, than by conditions that are external to who you are, which you cannot control anyway, which you are not in control of on a daily basis except in terms of your responses. Is that clear? So it's clear to you how your thinking and your actions can be determined by your values over your conditions. That's the first step in understanding the process of the psychology of incarceration. That is the critical first step. You have to first truly see and understand how your thinking and your choices are fundamentally the result of a power source that you have within you rather than left to the conditions that you find yourself in. Yes. Is it possible that your thinking at any given time can be affected from both sides? He asked the question, is it possible that at any given time your choices and your thinking can be determined by both your conditions and your values? That is an excellent question. And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And we see it all the time. We find ourselves in conditions or in situations sometimes that are very dangerous, like being in prison. And you know that it's necessary for you to be clear about how you act in prison based on certain values that are common, that have been normalized, where it may be completely appropriate to be violent in that environment, even though it's not your natural temperament or choice to be violent, you end up seeing that there's some usefulness in being violent in that situation. So you have values on one hand that go to nonviolence, but you have a condition that reflects a need to be violent according to your decision, your perception of what that situation is. So you then have to go back and forth. We struggle with which will we do? What will we be? How will we act in that situation where I know that if I don't handle myself, if I don't protect myself in this situation, someone's going to take advantage of me. But my values challenge me to not act out that way. Those situations are situations of conflict, personal, deep personal conflict. And when we're challenged in that way, one or the other is going to win out. Either we will find ourselves acting based on the condition or we will try to do, and this is where we get to the challenge, what's called here, the challenge. 
And the challenge is always based on acting outside the condition. The triangle represents the condition. The challenge is always, are we able to act outside the conditions? In every situation, are we able, that's the fundamental question, are we able to act outside the conditions and make our choices more grounded, more reflective of our values than our conditions? We had a question here. He asked the question, if you act based on the conditions repeatedly over a long period of time, will that lower the standards of your values? Will you find yourself after a while acting purely out of your conditions more often than not being a person who's more driven by conditions than values, than your own values, not someone else's, than your own personal values. And in, in doing that, does it really lower those values? That question is an incredibly insightful question that has implications that are lifelong. I would say absolutely, absolutely. When you are on a daily basis faced with conditions that are painful, that are violent, that are harmful, that put you in a situation where you are thinking about that which you know is not the best that you are, and for purposes of survival, you continue to act out of the conditions and override your values which you have developed over many years of your youth and upbringing that challenges you to be better than what you appear to be, those kinds of compromises and concessions on a daily basis begin to distort your sense of your own values to the point that many of us end up acting in ways, while it seems normal, are absolute distortions of our values, of the best that we are. And we come to accept it and explain it away as it's justified because everybody else is doing it. That question goes to the heart of the challenge that we have. And the challenge comes from the work of a gentleman by the name of Viktor Frankl. And the title of Viktor Frankl's work is Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who wrote a very interesting book where he begins to explore what it means to find meaning in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our turmoil about who we are and what our life means, he said that it's important, at the end of the day, the most important work that we could do is to make meaning of our suffering that's dignified and purposeful and reflective of the best that we are. The reason why we link the work of Viktor Frankl with the work that we do in prison is because for most of us, to be in prison means to be in a very difficult situation, to be in a situation that's so painful that it's hard for many of us to look it square in the face and take responsibility for being there, number one, and then number two, 
for the kinds of thinking and choices and values that are necessary for us to embrace in order to get out before we're released. Anybody can celebrate being out once they're physically released. That's child's play. The real power is evidenced when we can get out before we're released. And getting out in this case means that we'll do what we call a Victor Frankel. We'll do a Frankel. We will challenge ourselves to change our thinking, to transform our values, and to stop basing our behavior on the conditions and in fact see that we have the power to act out of values that reflect our dignity and our worth as human beings, as men, as women who are worthy of respect, who have integrity, who care about other people. Does that make sense? That's the transformation that has to happen. If that transformation doesn't happen, guess what? I don't care if you get out and stay out, you're still not out. There are lots of us who get out, and I've been out now almost ten, eight years I've been out. And I still struggle with what it means to be out. Because it's just like you have asked. There are times when I find myself reflecting on whether or not I should act out of my conditions or my values. And it's not always obvious. Because so many things in my life had been normalized by those 20 years in prison that was mentally and emotionally destructive that I I couldn't even see it when I was in prison. It took me getting out of prison to begin to examine how incarcerated I had become over those years in my own thinking and in my own emotional responses to situations I was in. I had no frame of reference in prison. It was so normalized that everywhere I looked, it was just like the way I acted and just like the way I thought. Yes. He asked the question, so is it safe to say that, most, that some people are incarcerated before they even get to prison? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going to hear this word a lot. Absolutely. It is so safe to say that, that what we know from our work and our research is that the majority of people engaged in the thinking Anti-social thinking, anti-social values, the thinking that was so anti-social that it ultimately created the conditions of jail and prison. So it's easy to call someone, to identify someone as an offender once they've been arrested and put in prison. What was going on with the person before they got arrested and put in prison? You don't just get up and act out criminal behavior with no thought. Behavior follows thinking, not the reverse. We think about things and then we engage in behavior that reflects or is consistent with the thinking that we have. So those of us who end up in prison, jail and prison, we thought our ways there. We thought our way into jail and prison. That's the, that's the bad news, and that's also the good news. Because if you thought your way into prison, if that's what we've been doing all these years, 
I thought my way into Lucasville. I thought my way into maximum security prison. The good news is, once I realized that, I also understood that I could think my way out. Because if you understand that it's your thinking that gets you there, it's your thinking that makes you feel powerless, it's your thinking that frames your responses to conditions, then you also recognize that it's your thinking that can transform your responses to those same conditions. Is the realization and acceptance that my thinking got me here, is it that simple to change my thinking? I mean, is that simple realization and acceptance enough? Like in the Bible, I accept Jesus Christ, therefore I am saved. He asked the question, is there, is it enough to simply have a realization that my thinking got me there and once you realize that and accept it, I can stop thinking that way and therefore I'm no longer that person. I would say yes and no. Yes, it is simple in the terms of the realization, though it generally takes great work, but that's never enough. The realization by itself is virtually empty because the realization requires work. It requires vigilance on the part of each of us in terms of examining how we're thinking on a day-to-day basis in situation by situation and relationship by relationship. And, and, and why I say that is because you can have somebody that you're really close with in prison who basically believes the same way that you believe and sees life very similar to the way that you see it, walk across the yard and see five guys, the first five people that you encounter, and hate them because you see them as being different than you. You see them as being somewhat, someone who basically has different values than you and is not about what you're about. So you're challenged even in that situation Though you have a realization that your thinking is critical to understanding how you change your conditions, you're still challenged on a daily basis in your personal relationships with acting differently and thinking differently in your personal relationships and in your day-to-day walk. Yes, sir. I was just going to answer no because the way I see it, it's a learned process. To get in here, you have to educate yourself to get get your mind right, to get out of that whole, whole thinking process. He makes, he says that the response to the question earlier about is it that simple, his response is no, because over time you learn to think that way, to think in ways that are antisocial. That's a process. You don't just come out of the womb as a baby thinking antisocial thoughts, engaging in antisocial behavior. We don't do it. It doesn't work like that. We're conditioned over a long period of time, and one day we wake up to the realization that, you know what? I have been in and out of the penitentiary for 10 years, 3 years, 5 years, 20 years. I've spent my life engaged in behavior that has me now feeling like I'm worthless. That my life doesn't even matter. And the people who I love most, they're saying that about me. We don't understand why you keep doing this, why you keep acting the way that you are. So your answer is exactly correct. It takes time for us to get to a place where we start thinking in ways that are distortions of our mental health. And it's going to take time for us to really get through a process where we're transformed 
in our thinking so that these distortions are changed and become reflective of the healthy aspects of the mental health standards and the traits. Knowing some of the background of some of the people, would you say that any of this is um, hereditary? He asked the question, knowing the backgrounds of some people and understanding that we see behavior that's habitual, we, we see people that come in five and six times in prison, you, you ask them about their personal histories, their father was in prison, their mother was in prison, uncles were in prison, and so he asked the question, could it be hereditary? What we say is that no thinking is hereditary. All thinking is learned. No thinking is hereditary. We say that all thinking is learned. And the power of this model is that if it's learned, it can be unlearned. And if it's learned by you, it can be unlearned by you. Therefore, no matter who your teacher may have been, where you learned this behavior, how you learned this behavior, ultimately you can take ownership for its transformation because it's what you learned that's most important, not what they taught you.